A word to the wise. We are an explicit podcast tackling content with adult themes as well as entering spoiler territory if you aren't caught up with us. This is our penultimate episode on Iron Gold. We are reading up until, or sorry, through chapter 57. So make sure you're caught up with us there. And uh, yeah, we're almost done. Crazy. Hey there, this is Cross. And I'm PJ. And we are Words and Whiskey, a podcast for veteran and novice readers alike. We tackle fiction novels and love to talk about what we're drinking. You should think of us as your intoxicating weekly book club. You know, I think I need to start treating this empty filler line with some ramblings about what's been going on in my life. I've just kind of been in a little bit of a rut, you know, day in, day out. I work, I eat, I take the puppy outside to play, I sleep. That's about it, you know? But today I've got something truly great to live for. Ragnar Chuck Norris jokes. Ragnar drinks scorcher fuel to cure his heartburn. Some kids spell their names by peeing in the snow. Ragnar peed his name in the concrete of New Thebes. Ragnar can slam revolving doors. Ragnar can punch a man in the soul. <laughs> Ragnar is the reason for Waldo is hiding. What? <laughs> <laughs> Ragnar is the reason Waldo is hiding. Outer space exists because it's afraid to be on the same planet as Ragnar. Death once had a near Ragnar experience. <laughs> <laughs> that one's too real. I'm ending that. In all seriousness, though, things aren't. Things aren't bad. Things are going well. I'm I'm happy, but I still see a therapist, and you should too if things aren't great, or if they are great, and you just want to talk to somebody that's not in your life about personal stuff, because that actually feels really good. Yeah. Anyway, let's go on to uh, what we usually talk about. This has been your mental health PSA from there Words we go. and Whiskey. There we go. <laughs> Today is our ninth episode covering Iron Gold by Pierce Brown, and we are going to tackle chapters 52 through 57. But before we do that, we're going to talk about what we're drinking. What are you having today, PJ? I intentionally kept this from Crossland because it's an I know. abomination and I didn't want to write it because it's hilarious. I'm calling it the very green or the, the very. Hmm, nope, never mind. I don't know what I'm calling it. The very mean green machine, I guess. So it is four ounces of naked juice green machine, <laughs> two ounces of moonshine, one ounce of orange juice, okay, one ounce of hypnotic, <laughs> a floater of Chambord. <laughs> okay, so before the Chambord, I, I shook all that. So that was all shaking. Okay. And then... Um, Tried to do a floater of Chambord. Chambord's heavier than that mixture, so that just sank to the bottom. Um, and I, <laughs> it's, a, it's a fun base of Chambord. <laughs> and then, then I garnished it with a maraschino cherry. Wow, so, that sounds atrocious actually, and disgusting. It actually doesn't taste that bad. It mostly just tastes like naked juice. I strictly don't believe you. I mean, I guess, like, the thing about Moonshine is the the flavor's relatively neutral. Yeah. So, you're basically just adding gasoline right. to whatever you're drinking. 
And then orange juice typically goes well with green stuff. Okay, how about as this? As seen by like every smoothie. Get naked juice. Get naked juice. <laughs> that makes the most sense. <laughs> but I mean, it doesn't matter, PJ, if you get naked though, because this is a podcast and that works hey, for the medium. They'll know. <laughs> and more oh importantly, God. you'll know. <laughs> thank god i'm not seeing you right now for the record (laughs) all right i have to tell this story before you do your other thing so last week i partook in the uh hail reaper trivia by the way first first of all i need to cut you off there you use the word partook all the time and i don't think you use it right what do you mean i guess it's kind of partaking but participating i think makes more sense there partook that sounds like join in an activity it sounds like you're like s- jumping in on a on a joint circle or something. Like I'm partaking. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> Fine. <laughs> uh, so I partook in the trivia night, and not changing my ways just for you. Uh, <laughs> and I had I had my camera on for it, and I'm so used to not having the camera on for this show that when people were saying the right answer on the other team, I was nodding my heads and like totally signaling that they were correct. <laughs> it was, that was just a dead fucking giveaway. It was so that was that was so bad. Eventually, oh, I, I was able to dissuade myself, um, as previously mentioned, bad at poker. So this is all this all feeds into this uh so um, g- give a little rundown what was that trivia night i was for uh the hill reaper patreon it was inside of their uh Hellerpod and i partook against a home team of the hill reaper patrons we basically went through a trivia challenge with obscure numbers and names and characters and all kinds of things um we ended up coming out of the first round ahead by a point or were we tied no we were tied that tells uh, we me were, you lost at the end we were down oh to oh and five and we came back very hard swinging to get back up to tide and then in the quotes section everyone got obliterated like almost there were only two that were given correctly and the other team got both of them like a lightning quote round so say a quote and then you had to guess the character that said the quote so, so what you're telling me is you're bad and you should oh, feel I, bad. I lost. <laughs> that's, there's no question. No, that that sounds like a blast. I wish I could have joined, but I haven't read the fifth book yet, which is your fault. But um, And yeah. you have like 50 pages left in this book. That too. <laughs> uh, I'm not, I'm not yeah. bitter about it. <laughs> I'm not angry. You're what are you, angry. What are you chasing up uh, that with? Oh, yeah forgot i didn't finish my conversation overcoming by company values brewing company it is a fruited smoothie sour with raspberry blackberry and marshmallow so i've never heard of this brewing company before never heard of this beer before it is Hmm. delicious i mean it's it's a smoothie like is more than any more than beer it's a smoothie which nothing wrong with that but yeah it's not as like sickeningly sweet as a lot of the smoothie sours that you'll find are. There's there's a lot of thickness to it just from the amount of fruit that's in there, but it's not like chunky like like some that I've had in the past have been. So I think it's well balanced. There's a decent amount of tartness on top of the the sweetness and the flavor. I I, I think it's really really well done. So I'm happy with it. Cool. And the can sounds looks good. Sweet. Sounds really tasty. Nice. What have you got for us today, Crossland? 
I am partaking in the patron-selected drink. You guys chose whiskey this week, so what I'm having is a smoked honey whiskey sour. So I smoked an ounce of honey, which was interesting an interesting experience. I don't think you're supposed to do... That's bad for your lungs, Crossland. You're... You, you, oh, I see you. I see you over there thinking that I put honey in like a cigarette with tobacco and whatnot in it. <laughs> Who do you think I am? Um, <laughs> so, a whole ounce just wrapped up into a cigar. <laughs> just, oh my God. Can you imagine it leaking out the end? That's disgusting. <laughs> so one ounce smoked honey, two ounces of bourbon, uh, homemade sour, two ounces of homemade sour, so it's equal parts, and then an orange peel for affectation and a little bit of prestige to make it look nice. Overall, really tasty very very tasty drink it's got obviously the back of smoke is excellent and it gives it kind of that a campfire warmth i'm sure it varies based on the wood chips that you use but yeah it's delicious that sounds so good though and i want to try it so yeah it's fairly easy to make i mean the biggest thing is i had to buy a little tiny hand smoker but i've kind of wanted to get one anyway i know that's where i was at i was like i want to try making some like smoke cocktails and whatnot so i was like fuck it here we go Mm mm-hmm and uh, that's that's where we're at. So I'm following that up with a high pitch mosaic IPA from Highwire. It is their kind of mainstay beer. It's their constant drinker on tap. Um, it's very good. It's very citrusy. Big grapefruit. It's delicious. It's right up my alley. Awesome. A little bit dank, but it's it's all it's all solid. So so last <laughs> week's predictions. <laughs> uh, does the U- Duke the Uke does the Duke of Hands already know? that Ephraim is compromised you said yes and the answer is yes no it's <laughs> absolutely i thought no. i could trick you no but very horny the duke is very horny the duke the duke has a thorn of his own <laughs> a throbbing thorn a hardened thorn perhaps hmm. all right uh and you have to stem? drink maybe a stem stem well blow. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I did take a drink, but I'm going to take another one. Here, I'll, for the I'll, thorn sl- comment. I'll slurp for you. <laughs> so with that, let's uh, let's get into the chapters. So we start off with chapter 52, which starts with Darrow, host of the Minotaur. The Minotaur's soldiers to his speech is certainly something. There are a couple of throwaway <laughs> historical lessons tucked in here. Uh, the, the feast that's mentioned is obviously a, a, an example from a play. But it's interesting to kind of have another angle on one of these speeches, a true kind of golden rallying cry. I love Darrow's comment about observing how he walks and holds himself throughout these speeches. It kind of mimics the flow and climax of the speech as well as he starts to bring himself up out of sulking into standing tall. And how he just holds himself carries a serious weight with his soldiers. Yeah, um, I think the most interesting thing for me was how they could have remained loyal for so long, like fervently loyal even though they were kind of fucking around and indulging themselves like they they're standing at attention they are embarrassed by like him calling them out on their shit like they after this what a decade he's been in there for a decade Mm -hmm. and they still like will die for him as we find out later which is pretty crazy but i i think the the coolest part is darrow and how that same comment applies to him it wasn't the same amount of time he wasn't gone for 
decade, but he was gone for a year, wasn't he? Nine months. And we still, like, he became more loved after that time with the Jackal. So I guess it kind of makes sense. I, you can see that reflection there between the two of them. That's actually a, a great point about sort of the loyalty of his troops. And yeah, that's clearly kind of driven as a parallel point home throughout this this whole thing is that the Darrow and he aren't that dissimilar. And they kind of even come to agree on a number of things when it comes to the war and in different moments. It almost feels like if we were watching from the Minotaur's perspective, we might have some strange sympathy for him because we know Darrow as a character, you know? Yeah. They're, they are parallels. There is a point later on where... Darrow's talking to the Minotaur, to Apollonius. I don't know why we're strictly calling him the Minotaur. I guess that's how he's mostly referred to in this se- section. He he says something along the lines of he assumes Severo mistakes his uh, politeness for friendliness or something like that. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't seem that genuine of a comment. Darrow doesn't seem to be strictly using him as a tool i think he's starting to kind of see the similarities and see the uh the the appeal of apollonius yeah i think he's still repulsed by him but at the same time he's definitely he definitely has an understanding of him he doesn't mention it though he doesn't mention any of his like heinous acts of the past he doesn't his internal monologue doesn't dwell on that no kind of he also specifically says that he doesn't dwell on anything throughout these sections so that's another Another note is that he specifically is trying to push all of that from his head. But before the the horrible, horrible other shit happens, there is a moment where he definitely is like, dude's just fucking out of his mind. But he mostly he's mostly focused on the conversation with with Severo more than anything else, of course. So that that kind of takes precedent until you know everything else walks in so speaking of severo severo's back is kind of finally broken here by darrow what did you make up make of kind of the flare up between the two of them considering where they're at i think that was a long time coming um i mean frankly it surprised me that these topics didn't really show their faces earlier neither of them yeah we've, really... we've been discussing them mostly like all book we have but not between the two of them no, yeah, right, right. I'm, yeah. I'm saying we've been talking about the differences between them. But they they just have been avoiding the conversations altogether. Anything, um, there, there's, the, there, the, there's the conversation of Ragnar and Pax and Severo's dad and so many other faces that we've lost at Darrow's hand indirectly. And Severo has never addressed that directly to Darrow's face as any sort of accusatory way or, or otherwise. I I think it'd be healthy for them to just kind of hash it out, you know? They haven't. It's festered long enough that it, it seems like that's not going to be pr- productive at all. It's just going to cause them to fall out altogether. And then there's the comment that Severo, Severo sees in his eyes or something that, like, he actually believes he's a god and that he can't die. And honestly, why wouldn't he believe that? He's he's survived this much, but at the same time, even if he physically dies, he knows that he has such a ridiculous following that his his legacy will will go on and maybe even will go on harder if he dies. There's that, and I don't know if that's actually on Darrow's mind, but it he doesn't deny anything internally when when 
Severo brings that up. It, it is really interesting, especially considering how many brushes with death Darrow has in the very near future here, right? Like the entire next chapter is him almost dying constantly. Yeah, like just true. moments. There are moments where it's it's a late it's it's a blast from a beam that almost shears him apart, and he, he's able to jettison him off. There's a shell that explodes. He gets sniped in the chest. There are just all of these different moments that culminate in the near death of of Darrow so many times. And, you know, if that was happening to you all the time, you might be overconfident enough where you maybe did think that you were a god. It's right. It's tough. There's a whole fatherhood thing here as well that's lingering between the two of them and sort of the way that Darrow is able to put away packs and kind of pack that away because he's got the thing at hand, wherein Severo is fighting to survive specifically to see his kids, it feels like. It's it's an interesting comparison. With that, I also want to bring up the other comparison between Darrow and his friends, of course, which is before, that Darrow immediately... Before you divert away from that real quick, I think what's the most interesting about that comment, how Severo seems to be fighting for his kids and Darrow seems to be pushing it away, Darrow seems to think that the fact that Severo is holding on to his fatherhood and holding on to his children's like livelihood as a weakness... Like there's the comment mm-hmm. he can be a dad on his own time or he can be a father on his own time. Like he has right. not only pushed Pax out of his mind, he has pushed the idea of fatherhood out of his mind, which is a little bit more intense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's that's that's a great point. He is literally burying his responsibility to be a father under the current circumstances and judges Severo for not doing the same. Correct. Yeah. For his friend for not doing the same. It's it's a lot to take in, especially as I think that this is easily the biggest fight that they've ever had between the two of them. I mean, it doesn't come to blows like some of the other fights have. Yeah, but sometimes worse, words are worse than blows. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's, well, you know, isn't, isn't the Roke line something like friendships are forged over a lifetime but broken in a matter of minutes? Yeah. Some, I, something like that. I, I don't fully recall. I'm with you. I'm completely on your side, and I agree. I just like being obstinate. Yeah. there's. <laughs> I've already brought up the quote, of course, but there's even the direct comparison to that of Roke's heel turn here as well. And that makes Severo's decision that this is going to be his last have the same sort of final note that that did. And the, the whole thing just reeks of that same Roke moment. What else do you get from that? Well, I think here? Darrow internally evoking the roke turn and i mean he he doesn't call it a heel turn but it it is it tells me that darrow has all but effectively started seeing severo as an enemy which is not not a good mindset to be in going into war i don't know if he sees him as an enemy necessarily but he sees him as a friend who is slipping away yeah i think that he's he it's not so much enemy or adversary yet he's not he hasn't put him in that full camp but he can't help but recognize what losing a friend is like because he's lost you know a couple not even the ones that just died you know you think of like roke and you think of tactus as probably the two most obvious betrayals and woof yeah I think you can you can clearly make the comparisons though. Like Severo is a dear friend, just like Roke was, and he's kind of sick of Darrow's shortcomings on communication and the lack of concern for the people that are closest to him. And it seems kind of too late to have any sort of redemption 
in the moment. So, it, I mean, it's that's exactly what he went through with Roke. And it's, it's kind of no wonder that it, he's evoked here. I think going back to the fatherhood point a little bit, just because I kind of have it on my mind still, Severo never really seemed to care about self-preservation. And Darrow matched him in that sentiment. But through fatherhood with both of them, Severo has grown and changed and understands that there's more to live for than just the battles that they're in in the moment. And Darrow hasn't, either intentionally or just by nature of his own his own thought process and how he's been molded. He He doesn't see past that and he doesn't dive into self-preservation like Severo is now. So that's another kind of rift growing. It's so sad to see, right? It's just, it's it's a tragedy in many acts that we continue to see unfold from Darrow to his friends and he's repeating the same mistakes. And you think he would have learned at this point, you know, especially given the commentary on all the graves that they leave behind and sort of the sim- similarity. I, duh. But he's making the same mistakes for completely different reasons and in di- and completely different s- scenarios. Like this, this rift with Severo is not so much because of the lack of openness with him, and uh, that absolutely yep. has a a place there. But it's because of their the way they've kind of grown apart in just personal ideologies. Severo's no longer the tool that Darrow has always needed and always used in in war because he has something to live for now. Yeah, I the you're you're right and that is that is definitely different. I guess my thought process when I'm thinking about Darrow is sort of the the shift in my ability to agree or empathize with him to a certain degree, right? Where I'm, I promise I'm trying to get to this point here, but Basically, the way that Darrow was in back in Golden Sun and back in Morningstar was oblivious to what he was doing. Now he's aware and has wisdom into his actions and is also defending his actions. That That's what that reads to me when he is also saying that I can't believe that Severo's head isn't in the game right now. It's he's he's defending or reinforcing his mental position and that just it feels like a different darrow it feels like one who's not learning and growing it feels like a an adult war machine who thinks he's infallible yeah yeah that's exactly what he is right now i i love this old roke line that i feel like severo is also pointing back to to some degree is what i know is that we're running out of friends and this is back in golden sun in chapter 32 it's it's so obvious that he is feeling the exact same way, and that's why he calls on everyone else. That's why he calls out Pax and Tactus and all of and Lorne and Fitchner, his dad. It's gah, bah, Darrow, you idiot! Right? I don't yeah. know. Does it feel like does it feel like Darrow is maybe the villain of this book to you yet? No, um, because I think he I think he knows what he's doing. Sure. And I think he's doing it intentionally. I think he knows that if he splits his attention, he's not going to have the the ability to win. He needs to be all in on this or he's going to fail and he's going to die and he's never going to have those moments with his son or wife ever again. And he might not anyway at this point because of all of his actions. But I think that's truly his motivation. It's just the process that he has to go through in order to be in that mindset is all-consuming. Yeah, 
that's that's definitely true. He has to really embrace that in order to be able to make the decisions that he has to to proceed forward. We get that at the very end of this section as well. So I think we'll circle back to this a little bit right. at that point. Um, but let's move on to kind of the, the rest of this chapter. I think it's an interesting thing to see Hell Reaper twice within almost a page of each other said in different diminutive tones. One, The first being Severo as he's walking away and the second being uh, Apollonius as he is kind of waving off to Darrow before they go into combat. What'd you make of the two different uses within a page of each other? One's obviously ironic and one's obviously mocking and both probably hurt. It's <laughs> <laughs> a, a fair point, which I mean, you're, are you saying that Apollonius is, is the ironic one? No, Apollonius is the mocking one. It, sure. it says explicitly Apollonius yeah, mocking in a mocking says, Hail, Reaper, Hail Reaper, but Severo's, is i i guess ironic maybe isn't the exact perfect way to put it but he's not sincere about it he's saying mm-hmm. it disdainfully almost yeah it's like he's acknowledging the reality of what darrow's become what we just literally talked about he's just acknowledging the fact that okay dude you aren't darrow you're the reaper you're not the you're not darrow my friend you are the reaper that's a great that's a great point to bring up and a great way to look at this because he is two different people entirely. You look at him when he's sitting with Pax in the garage looking at the hover bike and how much he wants to be there. He understands that he's got this duty to himself and to the what he what he believes is to the entire republic, but he wants to be there and he wants to see how this kid grows and he wants to spend as much time with it with him as he can and that's Darrow. But then once you get into the war move, he's the Reaper. He is an entirely different person. Yeah. I hadn't considered that. He just, as you've, as you've so eloquently stated before this, he just completely flips it off and he's just in the other mode for the most part. But I, I totally think that's what Severo is going for here is like you said, it's, it's dismissive in a way, but on top of that, it's totally acknowledging what he views as the reality, which, you know, I mean, doesn't he also disavow and say that someone else can be Ares here too? He he straight up says that he doesn't. He's done being Ares. Yeah, like somebody yeah. else. Can I think he this. exactly exactly. So let let someone else be Ares. That's that's it. Yeah, so that's what I also find so interesting as we look at these parallels is that you've got the Reaper call out for Darrow and then Severo basically backing down from his title because he wants to be a father and he can't be that idol of war and rebellion anymore. Right. And I think that this is entirely changing the way that I'm looking at Darrow and his motivations here, because I think this is the process that he has to put himself into in order to get things done. He needs to disassociate. He needs to be a completely different person and trying to evoke the emotions of Darrow during while he's not Darrow isn't going to be effective and honestly probably would deter from the mission. Yeah. I can't I can't disagree with that at all. I think that I think that you're definitely right, but that doesn't make him, you know, or that necessarily a good thing for Darrow or for his family in the long run. Not necessarily for his family, but for his goals. I think it's exactly what his (laughs) goals need. Yep. Which I mean, say what you will about that. His goals are noble, aren't they? Yeah. So I can't I I had so much like 
disdain for him and anger for him but now like i'm completely pivoting <laughs> because of oh, that man, one that sentence i am that wasn't that wasn't meant to give you that on, <laughs> i'm on darrow's side you you sh- i don't i don't think you should be on darrow's side because of the fact that he's able to just turn it off that's worse in my head isn't that better i mean no because he's ultimately not he's not picking a reality he's trying to have he's ultimately trying to have the best of both both worlds if you want to try to simplify it down in a way to get the job done I mean, um, which, so so the sure. ideal, the ideal would be he decides that he doesn't have to be doing this anymore, and he retires and lives with his family, and that's great, and that is the right way to go. <laughs> but he has this overwhelming urge and responsibility for, or feeling of responsibility for the republic as it as it exists. And Mm -hmm. he understands himself that if he completely turns off everything and focuses his entire being into keeping the Republic safe and doing what needs to be done in order to make sure it goes forward the way that they have planned. If he understands that he's going to be distracted by a kid and his and his wife, isn't it better to turn it off? I mean, better in a way, I guess, right? So the the reality is still, if we go back to the fantasy that Darrow has where he can retire, that he has this ability to retire, as we were looking at the beginning of this book, <clears throat> if, we, if we go back and we engage with that fantasy, that's ultimately what Darrow wants. And he's also sacrificing all those things because he's not making those decisions. And so his choice here, to me, reads as one where he's choosing war over family i understand the perspective of turning it off but ultimately he's also choosing to not be there for his kids and so his kid is distant you know like that's just sort of the the nature of things because you aren't there you can't repair that no matter whether or not you can turn it off in battle to support this i do agree with you though as i literally mentioned later he's he's kind of choosing to be the dad to one thing and not the other so um what what if he can't turn off the reaper and oh, he, I agree with you. When, I don't when, think he can. When he's with his family, he's constantly battling between Darrow and the Reaper, but he's able to turn off Darrow. So if he satiates sa- 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 the the goals of the Reaper and gets that done and like finishes whatever needs to be done and can retire, the Reaper doesn't have to exist anymore and he can just be Darrow. But that's also Dancer's point right at the beginning of the book when he's talking with him, right? He's he's taking that walk with Darrow through through the forest and they're having that conversation and Darrow's like, all we have to do is purge the core. And then Dancer's like, okay, so then what are you going to do about the rim? Because, you know, they're not going to deal with this long term. He's like, we'll do whatever we have to to deal with the rim. And then he's like, okay, so then what's the next fight? Because you know that this is never going to end, right? And Darrow kind of just doesn't really acknowledge it out mm-hmm. loud, but he acknowledges it silently that Dancer is totally correct. And yeah. I think that you're right. He just is the Reaper, and he's I, not willing to admit that. I think, I don't necessarily think Darrow is in a healthy place. But I think <laughs> based on who he is in the moment, he's doing the right things. Mm-hmm. He's doing what makes yeah. the most sense for who he is right now. That's not to say I think he should be who he is right now. But I, I, yeah. Do you understand what I'm kind of rambling oh, I, through I right definitely, now? I definitely understand what you're saying. You, <clears throat> and it's even better that we started this conversation with a note on mental health because Darrow's not <laughs> in a good place. <laughs> Darrow definitely has some anger issues that have not been addressed yeah, I on mean, the whole. Yeah. 
I'm sure there's a whole there's a whole host of other problems from growing up in the mines and being lied to your entire life to believe that you're uh, providing the future for prosperity when in reality you're a literal chud and then dying three times and then uh getting tortured in a box for you know the better part of a year and (laughs) just the list goes on i i think i hmm i i think i misattributed chud what does it stand for cannibalistic underground cannibalistic humanoid under underground dwellers he's not a chud Correct. He's, he's he just lives underground. I, as far as I understand, he's not the jackal, so he hasn't eat people. <laughs> I was about to say the jackal joke, so that's good. Yep. Glad uh, glad you skipped right so, by that one. Sorry, sorry to misappropriate the term chud. He's just a regular dick <laughs> that grew up underground. Anyone who uh, has read Stephen King probably has a different interpretation of how chud the as well, fuck because it's how the so fuck important. Every God damn episode. <laughs> well, do you bring up Stephen King? I can't help it, man. I just I can't help it. Eventually we'll get there. It'll be fine. So, uh the final note of this chapter because we've spent a long time on this first chapter. <laughs> the better part of a half hour. Uh <laughs> is <clears throat> the Minotaur donning his horn helm and reciting John Milton's Paradise Lost is certainly a visual image that sticks with me every time to kind of kick off the way that this battle starts. Uh, I think that it's just a fantastic moment in imagery, and I think it is when Apollonia starts getting called and really referred to as the Minotaur. And he also changes in a way, just like Darrow changes to be the Reaper. And later he even makes that comment, which is, I think, just reinforces the point. Yeah. Yeah, they... Man... The Minotaur is such a cool fucking dude. Um, Paradise Lost is brought up a shit ton of times this book, isn't it? Yes. Always by Apollonius. Oh, is it always by Apollonius? Okay. I'm pretty... Maybe there was a reference right away in the beginning that wasn't, but yes. Maybe. Uh, I, I feel like it was brought up by Lysander at one point, but either way... It might have been. Oh, because it was Nilton versus Milton at some point, right? Someone. Yeah, but it was, that was misappropriated anyway. <laughs> yes yeah yeah that was someone talking to alexander about alexander said a quote alexander said a quote that wasn't by milton and Mm -hmm. rona's response was nilton right (laughs) yeah right that was last episode i can't remember exactly what it was but anyway um there's the comment on the the minotaur helmet that he dons which Mm -hmm. that's just a bull helmet right i mean yeah i guess i think of minotaur as a larger bull and maybe more dramatically curved horns or like elongated or prolonged but fair enough yeah like the the point of a minotaur it's it's like the head of a bull and the body of a man yeah yeah i mean so roughly like i know it says like the the curved horns are like shooting into the sky so i'm guessing it's a more elaborate and more exaggerated horn feature but um i was imagining the uh the helmet that gendry made for himself in game of thrones that like Mm. metal black bull helmet that he wears but for some reason i feel like it's probably more more like a metal mascot helmet (laughs) like this big exaggerated 
I was going to say the other thing to remember is that the the way that these helmets are is they like roll up and roll down, right? So they kind of have an expansive quality to them. You know, they okay. like they'll like roll back into a helmet, and so like the the features or whatever covers the eye is going to be a little bit more full and be replaced by a visor. But I I totally agree with you on the Gendry thing. It's in my head definitely looks similar. Mm-hmm. Oh. Man, Apollonius, what a dude, what a man. <laughs> What a dude, man. Okay, what with that, we man. finally move into the second chapter of this week. <laughs> chapter 53, Darrow, War God. There's there's a lot here. We've already discussed kind of a, a number of things about Darrow, and this, this will only bring up more that we're going to talk about, I think, over over the course of this, because we even get more evidence of it. Love so, this, this is a quote here, kind of the fantasy that we were just discussing. Love so potent so whole and true that it hurts because even when you convince yourself that it will last forever you know enough of the world to see how things break and fade but somehow some way you believe this love will be the exception that it alone will last and i just the i mean the quote is harsh and true in a lot of a lot of ways um but it's also it carries with it, a lot of wisdom on sort of the foolhardiness that is the thought that like love is can stand forever on its own without commitment or without other components to kind of go with it partnership in in truth and yeah i i in this one way darrow well not only in this way but darrow feels very immature here um a little bit but i'm going to bring up something that i think will dissuade you from that idea first of all the quote itself is just strikingly bleak but so so real and so just raw but at the same time this as far as i can remember is the first time that he's talked about loving someone in a way that doesn't seem overshadowed by the love that he had for eo um i would say that there's been a couple of times in this book but i would agree with you in general that this is definitely a lot less juvenile and tainted with sort of the memory of eo because now he's been married to Mustang longer than he was ever married to EO. He wasn't like, how old was EO when she died? Like 16? 16, I think. They were married when she was 14, something like right. that. Yeah. So, I mean, he's been married to Mustang for a decade. And I don't know about you. I barely remember when I was 16. <laughs> like, I, I remember bits and pieces. I remember you were in my life. I don't remember specifics mm-hmm. like everything fades like this quote says everything fades everything crumbles everything's gone so live now right well he's he's not even saying live now he's saying I know he's not but uh, i'm telling you that's live now that's a fair point and a good <laughs> a good way of looking at it that's that's a great great thing it's it's kind of the paragraph that follows that where he starts to talk about packs and sort of that like ache because i think that there is something regardless of the love for for a partner or what have you there's the obvious love that most parents have for their children that does have a sort of weird eternal i obviously don't understand it because i don't have kids you don't have a kid you've got a dog though which is close but not the same uh that you have like an unending love that you know is is incomprehensible and unchangeable and all of these different things and that's kind of what he's what he thinks about with pax but he just like doesn't yeah doesn't again doesn't fully acknowledge that he acknowledges that he fucked up though that's the one thing about that next paragraph 
that I like about Darrow is that he does acknowledge that he spent the time that he should have spent with Pax and with Mustang worlds away. But he he doesn't necessarily say that. And I think this this gets back into the the Reaper versus the Darrow thing. He doesn't necessarily say that it's he, he doesn't say what he should have done differently. He just says, I know I spent that time. I spent it away. Mm-hmm. You can imply the regret and you can can imply the things that he would have done differently, but he doesn't say them and he doesn't think them because we're reading his thoughts effectively. So I, I think, I think it gets back into the intentional suppression of feelings. Yeah. Which Darrow is definitely an unreliable narrator in that way, for sure. As we've learned, especially in Morningstar is, you know, a moment where that definitely comes to life. I, I agree with you. I think that it doesn't actually express any implication whatsoever on whether or not he feels like he spent his time wrong but it does express at the very least that he knows that he spent the time and that he chose the life that he chose yeah so it doesn't mean he's not he's not painting it as positive or negative but he is at the very least admitting to himself what he did which is a very stoic thing to do right at the very least being like meh regardless of whether i fucked up or not i did this thing and so because i did this thing (laughs) I have to acknowledge that I did it, and then we can determine it later. Right. So right after that, we we immediately cut from there for him going back to like the idea that he's about to sail into a planet basically being launched out of a ship again, obviously suborbital, so he's not going all the way from space. I love that among the Howlers, Ragnar jokes are effectively Chuck Norris jokes here. It's such a nice moment of levity to break up all the seriousness that has been <laughs> literally our last hour of conversation yeah. um not quite an hour but you know it it's mm-hmm. nice that it kind of adds the sense of levity and that he kind of has evolved into a sort of myth among the howlers it's it's fantastic yeah oh you so, wrote myth i didn't read that shit I, yeah bad. i i did i mentioned myth in my little dissertation Fuck. That was going on but obviously we started this episode out with us reading ragnar jokes which basically what we did was look up a bunch of Chuck Norris jokes and change it to Ragnar because that's what he did in this book. Like, I'm pretty sure I've heard those Chuck Norris jokes before. I shifted them a little bit to make them, you know, relevant to the world. But... I mean, the ones in the book. Oh, yeah. Yeah. These are definitely real Chuck Norris jokes. Yeah, exactly. But I what I'm most curious about is if this is something that they came up with and decided to do on their own or if they picked it up from people that had never met Ragnar and saw him as a mythical figure and like made these comments and jokes about him. And then the howlers that knew Ragnar adopted it from there. Like, I'm curious what way it went. That's really interesting. I think that that's a really good question to ask because I think that it, it does pose that larger question because we do know that Ragnar is known as this myth is the, the shield of Tinos. And so I'm sure that this shit kind of fluttered around and then they're they're joking about it. They weren't the ones themselves that created the jokes, but they kind of live on through the jokes that people have spread about him. I think mm. I like that as an interpretation. Yeah, it'd be cool. Yeah. to Cool to see. Cool to dig into that. But we never will. I'm assuming. Yeah, that's one of those things. Either that, way. Either way. It's beautiful. Doesn't really matter. You know, and, and not that Darrow always has to be the spoil sport here, but he is once again the spoil sport <laughs> and kind of tears us out of these like fun moments, these funny moments, and is like, we have to get the two last grimaces and they just shout the names, they recite the names. And it kind of feels strange in that way. I mean, it is refocusing the mission, but the howlers, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It's refocusing, but it's also a tradition of theirs. 
they've always tradition done that. of the golds right but that's where this all started you know this all started with the golds and it's the howlers were all golds before now this book basically so they knew that they they had it wasn't like darrow could just wait it out and say like all right now we're done joking around let's get going they're, they're on a timetable because they're physically moving through in a spaceship to where they need to go so like it's time to go we've got to like go through our little tradition of saying who we're gonna go fuck up and get get mm-hmm. after it so i i get it he kind of has to be the spoil sport in that sense but i don't think it was meant to be anything malicious or disrespectful towards ragnar Oh yeah, I, d- I don't think they're being disrespectful at all, but mm-hmm. it's just a it's just a kind of Darrow being a spoil sport more more to me than anything else. It's fair. Of course, they they literally, you know what's interesting here? I just caught this while I'm looking at the page. If, if you look, Hierg la, la Ragnar, Severo snarls. Hierg la Ragnar, the men bellow back. Darrow doesn't say it. Hmm. Interesting. That's interesting. Yeah. That seems weird. Yeah, I. And I think that it just speaks to kind of the disconnect that Darrow in general feels to most things as he's also become as later, he kind of becomes apathetic even to the deaths of like he acknowledges, but is kind of apathetic of the deaths of two of the howlers that happen during this fall that we're about to talk about. So I didn't put this in the notes, but again, I'm looking at I'm staring at the page and I can't help it. That's just so good. Uh, my calm silent with static i am no father no husband i summon my anger my hatred i'm the hell diver of lycos the reaper of mars come to rip the life from the last great warlord of gold and again it gets back to what we've been saying this whole time which is that darrow switches off reaper switches on <laughs> here goes yeah what's what's interesting to me though is that he includes the hell diver of lycos as part of the personification or not personification part of the personality of the reaper because it seems to me that the Helldivers, while they, they have to face brutal conditions and they have to be at the top of their game at all times, their motivation always, constantly, is their family. That's a great point. Everything they do is to, to win the laurel to provide and for their to provide for their family. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The general work that they do. That's that's a great point. And the fact that he isn't he doesn't acknowledge that instead he only looks at it as the job that it was, not the role in the culture that it was. And maybe it's a really that's, great point. Maybe that's the point too though. Separate yourself yeah. between you and your job. That's a huge disconnect. Great work. So I still think it fits your uh, fits your theme. The the next part is kind of what I had mentioned earlier, where Darrow goes from uh, from the spit tube, obviously, and gets launched out and proceeds to fly into this absolutely crazy, chaotic scene of explosions and lasers and ga- cannons firing past him and evades death so many times in the air before finally kind of making it to the ground. These scenes in these next two chapters are fucking nuts. The way that, like, Pierce Brown just keeps you tapped into this like a live wire is just insane. It reminds me a lot of Golden Sun, the way that mm-hmm. all of the just combat is described. And I yeah. miss that. That was something we we really didn't get this intense level of of combat since Golden Sun. We did a little bit in uh, Morningstar, but not to the not to the same like war levels. Morningstar was more about the ship to ship stuff. You know what I mean? Like it was, it was about the yeah. fleets. 
They're, so it elevated from the ground combat to fleet combat. So we lost a, a little bit of this. We got a little bit of it with the, uh, what's the name of it? Bumblebee chapter. Yes. Yep. After, after Trig dies. But that was about it. Yeah. Right. Right. There's very little of kind of the, the war feel in that. And so this does feel like a return to the moments in Golden Sun here at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, it's fantastic. The the way that everyone kind of drops down and lands. The way that when Darrow lands and he has the particle cannon on his hand and fucking uses that to pierce apart the other gun that's shooting up at the Howlers is fantastic. I think that that's a great example of excellent description from Pierce Brown and kind of learning over the years to uh, to create his prose. Mm-hmm how to craft that so i really loved it um and also finally well i mean not finally but we actually know a physical number now not just two two people height for the um <laughs> the fucking suits that they drop in the metal suits um the fact that they say that they're 12 feet tall and whatnot That's and kind of give the description of them being disassembled absolute insanity the star shells yeah yeah huge huge i but it I also really, gives you the perspective in the previous books you know where you understand why they're able to cleave through as many golds as they are when the golds aren't in these things i expected like eight feet like big but still proportionally like yeah there's somebody in that suit mm-hmm. 12 feet seems like like you're piloting something rather mm-hmm. than being because like where's your head at that point you just have an extra what four feet well three feet at at the bottom of your feet like is your head still in the, its head's place or is your head in the in the torso you know i would imagine that your head would probably go in the head space but also this explains why it's so difficult to get out of these fucking things right yeah but all right, all right so where's all that height that height has to just go basically below your feet then like the proportions don't seem to make sense at 12 feet with a seven foot person. Well, if you've got, I mean, mostly I would agree with you in what you said originally, where it's like most of that's going to be in your feet because that's going to be where a lot of the, the boosters and rockets and grab boots and things like that are okay. going to be. That's fair. So, but and then on top feet, of that, well, call it two and a half, call it, call it two feet. Two feet is a huge amount of shit to be below your feet. And then you have a foot <laughs> above the top of your head. Assuming right. you're a seven foot gold, which Severo is not. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Severo is real tiny. It's a fair point. Pretty, pretty fucking cool though. Yeah, I, I just want to see. I want to see Pierce sketch that out for me. See what he's really like imagining. Yeah, I mean there are definitely sketches out there, and there are um, like approved works of fiction, especially in Dark Age. They show one of these things so it definitely gives you the perspective um in the special edition dark age that i have you can win by submitting on our patreon or uh entering via a podcast review on apple podcasts check it out on instagram anyway with that out of the way instagram.com <laughs> slash word whiskey pot words patreon.com patreon.com forward slash words and whiskey there's the plugs boom all right there's the plug <laughs> uh <laughs> they're they're really fucking cool um is is what i'll say for sure the artwork is fantastic i'll send you some next time sounds good but still Uh, the 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 challenge is still there piercy boy give a little sketch give a little doodle of what you're imagining we'd love we'd love a little doodle actually he shared a little doodle on instagram the other day and made a comment because it was so bad he was like i would be a like horror 
book writer for children if i was also the art artist because it was terrifying it was super (laughs) super weird gangly Mm -hmm. so man so we move on from this of course to a section that really struck me out uh, or struck struck me hard this time the way that darrow cuts down the low colors in the shuttle without mercy relent is just absolutely frightening he is he truly is the reaper here he is rage made manifest he says i pull the trigger and make meat of men and that line has always stood out to me as like a prime example of the way that darrow changes from trilogy to trilogy i i know obviously we're in darrow's head and we know what's going on with him to an extent um but if we weren't i would totally believe it if you told me that he was dipping into ephraim's solidone stash like throughout this whole thing and even before that like as the reaper it 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 seems like he is explicitly like suppressing empathy and feeling it'd be it'd be a interesting to see if he's ever tried zolodone or if he's on it and just hasn't mentioned it (laughs) that's a fair point um or what he would be like if he was on it on top of what he's already like how fucking cold could he get yeah that's interesting as well the idea that he might somehow become colder it's that's terrifying (laughs) yeah i asked my name is darrow and i'm somehow worse or or if it just wouldn't affect him in that mindset yeah if he's already entirely apathetic does that does that change anything that's hmm, interesting i don't know i don't know how it would affect him you know yeah i think that's i think that's where where i'm struggling here I, with you of course you're you're speculating on what it is and i don't feel like i have a solid enough answer to really kind of weigh in i would i would generally agree with you or if zolodone is just the sweat of the reaper distilled into pill form <laughs> oh my god that's that's hilarious and <laughs> possible no it's wow. not <laughs> what well no i mean it would it would be it feels it feels possible i should say it's obviously it's not possible to take the sweat and distill it into pill form but it feels like that's a marketing phrase you know in a very outer world's way where it's like the sweat of the reaper distilled the cold sweat of the reaper distilled in the pill form so you don't have to feel your feelings like it's a marketing pitch okay there we go yeah that's that's what i was thinking i was like yes that works and then shortcutted without explaining what i meant (laughs) uh for sure oh man and just the way that even like the blue pilot throws his hands up before he shoots him and melts him and turns them into fragments of bones like chattering on the ground or whatever. Just dude, (laughs) fuck Darrow. Old Darrow would have like shot out the engines. You know what I mean? But like old Darrow would have like shot out the engines and let it crash and like some are going to die, but some will live. Current Darrow is like, fuck this and just guns them all down. Yeah. No time to waste. Exactly. Burned one too many times. A la Lorne. I think, for the record, I think that this Darrow would kill Tactus in the same way that Lorne did. This, yeah, he wouldn't have let Tactus get to this, get to the position that he was in. Yeah. He would have died a long time ago. Without a doubt. So, the final moment of the chapter to talk about here is Severo launching that fucking mini-nuke. It's so fantastic. We we go from seeing Darrow almost die from a sniper round to Severo grabbing the mini-nuke, launching it. And you can just feel his palpable frustration 
as he doesn't say anything smart or witty as he nukes the position so that they can break into the base and wherever you know the sniper is he's definitely dead or having a really bad time but that kind of silent subtext from our favorite prankster is totally missing here yeah i mean he he kind of starts walking away before before the actual impact of the nuke which gave me very cool guys don't look at explosions vibes the entire time again (laughs) again yeah Again, yeah. but like, yeah, it was, it was definitely a frustrated, not himself, just kind of doing what he has to do. Severo get down to business, Severo, which we don't see ever, right? He gets shit done, but he does it kind of in a Deadpool way where he's constantly making quips. Right, right. He does kind of have that same sort of Deadpool or Spider-Man feel where he's always got like the one liner to follow up the thing. Um, and he's he's always kind of prepared for that. And that's where I find the Severo to be so much colder here, obviously, after the speech with Darrow and kind of the finality of this this moment with the Howlers and also subsequently the death of a couple of Howlers. Like th- there are reasons that he he thinks that this is stupid and he's kind of fucking right. Darrow's lucky that he didn't die three yeah. times, like at least. Yeah, Darrow is incredibly lucky. He he. This was a suicide mission and should have been the end of the Howlers, by all accounts. And may still be. (laughs) Well, may still be. You're right. Not all the Howlers. There are plenty of Howlers that are off planet. But, I mean, you're losing core members here. Yeah. Or at the very least, they're at risk, you know, with, I mean, especially with Pebble Clown, like, uh, Milia as well. Uh, Speaking of, we'll go into chapter 54. Darrow wrath of the republic i th- this entire chapter gives me the boondock saints there was a firefight vibe <laughs> from what what happens here is obviously there's just this intense moment of these eight golds in their suits while well, seven golds darrow's not in his uh charging the dragoons of the ash lord and the peerless legio legio 13 dracones milia just dies after lobbing a head off, lopping a head off of uh, a gold. She's literally been with us in every single book. Yes, I had to look this up after I saw your comment, is she? but he, she is she's literally been in every single book. I don't believe you. <laughs> Frankly, I have all the I chapters. All right, um, I did. I did a search text just to double check, and hmm. she is in literally every book. Well, it doesn't feel emotional at all to me like it could have like it could have with another howler um because it it felt like she hadn't been present since book one and she really wasn't that present in book one either she was she was very present in book one not really she was all she was all over the place i have like at least she she was there we didn't get emotionally invested with her though that's true that'll give you the emotional investment we really get in her is in this book when uh Right. um alexander is kind of in love with her yeah or dating her yeah it just it it doesn't feel as tragic as it would with another howler that we like actually got intimate relationships with throughout the the series totally i do think it raises the stakes though and it well raises creates the stakes as it stands so mm-hmm. it's um it's definitely definitely fantastic in that way Right. Ugh. Her getting cut in half is is a whole thing, I think, at large. Um, it's well described. Yeah, right? 
as well as all of the destruction of all of the other folks suits over the course of this, the fucking like Severo suit getting torn apart gradually stage by stage and the entirety of the other howlers getting dismembered, like their suits being dismembered and them having to shed them while still like chipping away at the golds. Thankfully, uh, it's just, it's a brutal fucking chapter, man. Mm-hmm. But one, one like cool note though, is like Thraxa using a power hammer is fucking amazing. <laughs> like seeing a different melee weapon be employed is yeah. pretty fucking cool. And she's in a mech, which I don't know how big those are if the star suits are 12 feet. She's in a star shell as well. That's the mech that they're referring to. The star is. shell is the mech. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I assumed it was something different because that was the first time they referred to it as something other than star shell. I think they've called it mechanical suits, but I don't know if they've ever called it a mech strictly. So I assumed it was something entirely different. So never mind on that one, but... As far as the weapon itself, I was imagining the gravity hammer from Halo. I'm assuming totally. That's probably what most people thought of. But or the um, Overwatch dude's rocket hammer. You know, yeah. What's his name? That was that was the other one. Those are the only two that you know I can think of as prime examples. Mm-hmm. Is um, the giant rocket hammer or the? I would go. It's probably closer to the Halo hammer. Probably the way that it you know works for the most part. I'm with you. It's super cool. I'm it's um no, I'm just I'm happy with the idea of it <laughs> existing in it's, this universe. It's moments like these when you can see the subtle influence of Warhammer 40k on the series. Pierce has talked a couple of different times about it having a light influence on the way that he thinks about combat and sort of the epic nature of things, not the rest of the story or plot because the 40k story is incredibly convoluted. The like primary RPG story, not the books. The books are a little bit different, but the regular story is very complicated and convoluted, and he kind of borrows a little bit from that here as we think about the armor and the mechs and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. I don't really know Warhammer that well, so... You don't know anything that well, so it's it's okay. Well, that's true. (laughs) (laughs) Um, This mission was obviously incredibly dangerous. We've talked about that a couple of times. It was far too much for the Howlers to handle. Severo has proven right. This was almost a suicide mission, as he'd called out, with all of them ending up in horrible shape, dismantled by the forces of the Ash Lord. I mean, Severo has an arm facing the wrong fucking way at the end of this chapter. Pebble and Cloud are just missing, right? Like, mm-hmm. we've we've lost two Howlers. We've lost another two that aren't even there. We don't We don't really know if they're dead. We know that the other two are. We know that... I think clown was on his back and pebble was protecting. So there's clearly going to be casualties from this fight. We lost Milia in front of our eyes. Apol- Apollonius of course comes to save the day and more specifically saves Darrow's scalp. That's, that's true. I think this, this just kind of backs up the point that we've been making of Darrow versus the Reaper. And if they can be seen as two entirely different entities, because Darrow, the reaper in this moment really he he mentions things that are happening but he gives no emotional thought to what's going on even with himself when he's talking about being scalped it is matter of fact the entire time there's there's not a whole lot of emotion in general in any of this conversation really fucking cool to read i don't know i really like it I like the way that this is presented to us um, through the eyes of somebody who 
is strictly looking at what is happening and not thinking about what that means on a personal level. Absolutely. And what's so interesting is the title of this chapter is The Wrath of the Republic. I think what's interesting is that The Wrath of the Republic, to me, doesn't read as this is the wrath of the Republic bearing down on the Ash Lord. It's the wrath of the failure of the Republic on Darrow and the Howlers. Because if the Republic would have been on their side, this is not the way this would have gone. This would have been done very differently. And this is the wrath of Darrow's decision to kind of go to be Supra, to remove himself from the Republic. But this is the wrath of the Republic's decision on him and his personal life. And also, he's he chose to do this. So it's yeah. wrath earned in my head. That's that's true as well. The Minotaur shows up, of course, with the rescue and once again quotes Paradise Lost as he cuts down and destroys a fucking gray by smashing his head in. Constantly, before. like repeatedly. Yeah, yeah, just like absolutely pulverizing this dude's brains. Uh, helping Darrow to his feet. It's so interesting as not even Darrow thought that he was going to make it. You know, he was so... As you kind of mentioned a little bit before, he was so disconnected from the moment and felt as though the entire world was ending around him. Uh, What do you make of the Minotaur's formidable strength and ability to basically outmatch four versus one odds? So I, I believe it for him. It's just there's something that's tweaking my brain about whether or not like things actually went as they were said. Because I I believe Apollonius could take four to one himself, but all of them, all of his men are able to do that seems kind of crazy. I don't, I don't think there's that many people that have the crazy strength of Apollonius. So the, the, there's just something in my brain telling me not to trust what he's saying happened because we didn't see it explicitly. So I don't know. There, there's some some bubbling of conspiracy theorists coming up through me me seeing Apollonius in this scene. That's fair. It, this is the only time that we've seen Apollonius in battle, really. We've seen him in individual conflicts and fights, of course, and the way that he kind of dismantles people on his own. What is worth noting, though, is that originally he did fight on Luna to... Uh, kill the reaper basically in his sleep and murder his family and those folks did very well there on their own even when they were abandoned and turned on by the remainder of the society remnant so Mm. i'm with you and i understand where the conspiracy brain is coming in but also i think that as we've talked about the parallels between darrow and apollonius the minotaur and the reaper and the minotaur even more specifically i don't see why the forces themselves also wouldn't kind of mirror each other in their own way right especially in the way that the Minotaur attracts power and why these people are so dangerously loyal to him. Just like how the Howlers are dangerously loyal to Darrow. Yeah, but they've been sitting, sucking down oysters for the last decade. Do you think they're in prime fighting shape? Well, again, I would say that the (laughs) 971 or whatever the number is, I think it's 971. This is going to be great when this gets brought up in fucking trivia at some point. Um, (laughs) The 971 of them out of the quarter of a million that are originally there are probably decent. I would say at least half is in really good fighting shape, right? Uh, maybe. They they made it sound like, no, that wasn't the case. They were all kind of, they all had long, shaggy hair. Like, none of them seemed to be in, in shape. But they were the inspired, way. PJ. <laughs> they were inspired. 
by getting beaten down in a speech by the Minotaur. It's 911 men, by the way. 911. Thank you for uh, correcting that number. Yeah. I was trying to fuck everyone else up in trivia who Emergency listens to us and believes me. men for America. <laughs> oh, no. You just gave people a way to actually remember that. That's worse. The There's one, there's a small thing here to mention that I find interesting to ponder. Shitting with me? Yes, shitting with you on the toilets at the same time. I mean, we do that. We never talk about it, though. I know, I know, right? But, like, it's always great when, no, I'm done. I'm cutting myself <laughs> off. <laughs> <laughs> i was going to say something really crude and crass and i was like nah <laughs> we'll, we'll have to cut that uh so there's a there's a small thing here that i find interesting to ponder which is darrow says my face is so covered in blood from the attempted scalping that even my own mother wouldn't recognize me his mom said something along the lines in golden son of i would know you anywhere anywhere across the stars or something something that i'd affect i don't remember the exact quote but I think what's more at question is whether she would recognize this new Darrow through the cruelty and damage as he does here, as he's done across the last decade and kind of as this man at war. Yeah. So this is exactly where my mind went when I was reading this was like he I think he's talking about how his mom wouldn't recognize the man that he's become and who he's grown into and how it's how this entire decade of circumstances what decade and a half of circumstances has changed who he is and i think the uh the blood on his face obscuring who he is to his mother is less about the physical blood and more about who he's become in order to put himself into the situation and uh, i guess that said there were some substantial changes between when he was hanged and when he finally met his mom again at the end of Golden Sun. So maybe that kind of renders the point moot, but I don't know. I I don't think it renders the point moot at all because I think the changes were less severe between Red Rise and Golden Sun. Yes, they were intense. Yes, he became more intelligent. Yes, he was a trained military commander, but he still had the same sort of soul for all of that. You know, he hadn't really lost himself but now i think i I totally agree with you i think that between the moment in the box and and now he's shifted dramatically and i totally agree with you in the same way where that line is clearly it feels like it's clearly calling back to his mom not remembering not being able to recognize this man as he would have cleaved his way across the battlefield and picked out that it was her own son right i yeah it's it's terrible as far as that goes so mm-hmm. final point of the darrow chapters here we've got our very injured severo our bleeding out darrow and an aok apollonius making their move inside to end the ash lord once and for all or to die horrifically or to die horrifically yeah that's a fair point we'll see i think they'll make it out just <laughs> i don't know i've got a i've got a hunch okay all right (laughs) so we get to chapter 55 lysander requiem 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 Requiem. yeah i i was going to say that but then i was like because it's requiem for a dream and i know that i don't know why i was like requiem Uh, i i've also said it (laughs) sovereign sovereign requiem yeah requiem which makes more sense for the the title requiem for a dream rhymes then (laughs) it does hmm 
I've always heard it as Requiem. Agreed. So we we move right into the chapter, though, talking about, of course, our favorite thing in the world, Aruka the Brown providing food to Lysander. Do you think that he himself is the cook in charge of making those damn good sandwiches that we see later? Absolutely he is. (laughs) And the fact that there's a Brown named, first of all, there's a named Brown... He's in the story, and all that tells me is everything is right in the world. There's nothing crazy going on. Everything is as it should be across the solar system, right? Right, of course. There's no mini nukes going off. There's no wars. There's no iron rain. All is good. We got a cook. <laughs> we finally have <laughs> a named cook. Well, I guess actually we had the named cook um, back in. Is that the Golden one from Sun? Earth? Yeah, the Earth. Earthbound dude. Do not remember his name, but... No, well, he doesn't you know, matter. He's not a Ruka, you know? Yeah, he does matter, though. He's the theme of the book. It's it's the theme of the whole series. I yeah, feel entirely like, ashamed to have not remembered his name. I know, I know. I feel like it spells something really cool if we can scramble out all the names of the different cooks. <laughs> I think it'll it'll do something really neat and important. Well, Point at to the, the very final least, title, maybe. Pierce will be like, cool, you got it. <laughs> you you guys finally figured it out over there on the uh, that words and whiskey podcast you cracked the code you have understood that my favorite color is brown the most <laughs> it's important. also my last name <laughs> <laughs> i don't feel like you connected that until i said it out loud i didn't <laughs> shit (laughs) and then we find out who summoned lysander here of course and that is you can't just do that to me (laughs) i can't (laughs) i'm gonna leave you blue balls right there right there in that moment all right fine but it's gaia who summoned (laughs) uh packed with wisdom and intellect and cunning throughout this entire section the sentence you're just gonna have to make me remember what you said when i couldn't pay attention oh you dick (laughs) gaia is like this kooky old witch who's totally on your side it's kind of it's kind of strange you know she seems to be like she's on your side i don't know if it's true i don't trust her i don't trust anyone though so like maybe that's just a problem with me (laughs) i think it is i think that's what we're finding out do you think i should be trusting all these people blindly well I'm not saying blindly, but, you know, if you if you think about it, if we think about this whole thing, I, well, we'll get there in a second, I guess. Do you have any other thoughts about Gaia off the bat? Uh, she's a very interesting character, and she she is very articulate, despite her previous facade. She's very articulate, she makes really compelling points, and, I mean, is is just so interesting. And all I want to do is learn more about her. You know, do you think she's long for the world, though? Of course not. I, yeah. But at that I mean, point, seems... like, that said, who is? True. That's a fair point. That's a fair point. This entire section is very, very interesting, I think. I think that it points to a lot of things with Lysander. It's kind of an unexpected climax, in a way, for Lysander, where we've kind of had, like, two climaxes in a row for him. One with Cassius, and then the second one now with, kind of, Dido and the whole plan that it, as it unfolds. And Gaia right. and whatnot. So, it's if you've got two climaxes, you've got two high points, and there's no low point in the middle, it's just a plateau, You're going to right? sleep... Well, you're going to sleep right afterwards. You're falling asleep 
immediately if you have two climaxes in a row like that. There's no way you're awake. Mm, sure. This is a bad sex joke. That was clearly not <laughs> as funny as I thought it was in my head. <laughs> All right. So. <laughs> fuck. Uh, all right. Um, uh, moving on. My point You're right, was, though. It is, it, is, yeah. it is kind of a plateau, but they, they have... Their climax is for different reasons, right? Like, a climax is generally an accumulation of a a plot point, so to speak. And so the plot that really accumulated last week was Cassius and Lysander's identities. This week, it is the danger that that really puts Lysander in immediately. And what is he going to do to address that danger? Previously, we were kind of living in uh, Cassius's climax, I would say. I mean, always, right? <laughs> As mentioned by Gaia, Cassius was a little bit of a knob sleeping around everywhere. Known, known heartthrob. Absolutely. <laughs> and flirt. Which is funny, because we don't see him be flirtatious that often. He was at the very beginning of Red Rising, and he kind of is in the way that he talks to Darrow and everyone else. But, you know, we don't actually see him flirt with women that often, which is funny. No, we really don't. He has the reputation, but he doesn't back it up. (laughs) He says that he's a grower. You know? I mean, he claims that. Right, right. He says. He says. But... I find I find the entire character obviously really insightful. I find one line in particular. I mean, there's so much here where she is incredibly clever and Lysander even admits kind of the wit is very interesting between the two of them and likes kind of the reposts of the conversation as they continue. But I find one thing really insightful when she says, I rather think it the habit of a boy's mind to believe the man could exist without the woman. And obviously she's speaking about Darrow here, but there are so many examples of this throughout history, literature and a number of things you can obviously pick out pairs of people over time that have supported each other in incredible ways as they as through their lives the one that immediately comes to my mind of course it's no surprise is tabitha and stephen king and that's first and foremost as she literally pulled out the manuscript for carrie out of the trash and helped him fix it up so that he could publish it it's what led to his long-term success it was the first published book that he ever had it sold the paperback rights sold for almost half a million dollars it was incredibly important to their life and livelihood so i just think about that as an example of this quote existing in the real world crossland before before i called you out earlier this episode on always bringing up stephen king did you or did you not already plan on bringing up Stephen King later at that on? moment? I didn't know later I, on this, like this, this, was, this moment was planned. This moment was written. How, I, I prescribed this moment. How the fuck? Why? Why? Why do you always bring up this hack of an author? Hack. Oh my God. <laughs> I'm, going to, I'm going to throttle you <laughs> as are our patrons. <laughs> as the slash books is constantly filled with stephen king commentary <laughs> yep it is yeah um seriously though you always bring him up well i know i didn't realize you were going to talk about him later this episode when i called you out for bringing him up <laughs> earlier <laughs> i don't I, I can't even remember what the question was is <laughs> about is about the famous pair of women and like the women supporting men quote here that Gaia has. I mean, clearly like this is a woman speaking, so like she's wrong. Um <laughs> I'm putting you to the grave. <laughs> Sending you to the grave for that one. 
as are 50 percent of our listeners <laughs> i i think 100 percent of our listeners li- listeners should disagree with that well, that's that's a fair point <laughs> um, that was that was not a comment that i stand behind but i think it was funny <laughs> god i i am off the rails myself right now a little bit but yeah i i think um I think she has a very good point there that even if you take away the gender roles of it, there are always people that are influencing actions and influencing somebody's life. And if somebody rises to stardom or to herodom, herodom, I don't know. Heroism, heroism, I don't know. If anyone rises, they're not doing it on their own. There are always people that are supporting them. Support supported them, showed them where to go, molded them, however it might be. Nobody, I would argue nobody is born and raised and grows in a vacuum. There are always there are always external influences that make you who you are. So, that's kind of an extrapolation on what she's saying, but much less elegant so i'd pick her her commentary over mine all right well does that make all that sense means at all? that you're yes it, it does it just means that you're worthless and that we should move on well we know that everyone knows that. <laughs> no i i agree with you i think that it's a great point though when you're when you're saying it's not obviously just uh it's not just a, a wife i just think that it's interesting of course that she points out that it's specifically the habit of a boy's mind to believe that men could exist without the woman. It's obviously a comment on sort of the, the gender gender stereotype there as well. But obviously there, there are other forms of support that exist outside of just the immediate relationships and the way that people approach that point of heroism or success. So right. as we yeah. consider it, just like the idea that that's picked apart there. So if you are wise and lucky and live long as me you will learn this pain is just a drop in the sea she's obviously referring to the kind of commentary around all of the different deaths that have happened uh, lysander losing cassius and gaia losing three of her grandchildren it's such a fantastic and a beautiful line yeah for sure and it it's also a line that makes me really want to dig deep into who she is as a character right around here they talk about how Gaia knew Octavia as young women, right? That's in this yeah, passage. Yep. Yep. When like, they were talking I, about kind of how she was a Gaja and like talking about dances and yeah, I want to see that. I want to see that interaction, but just in general, I want to see what makes her tick. I want to see how she grew up. I want, I want more of this character entirely. And I don't know if we'll get it. Yeah, that's fair. We I'm do de- just kind of get this flash in the pan. I'm doubting we get it is more what I'm saying. Yeah. I hope it makes do, sense. but I doubt it. It's interesting to see other characters that we know from other lenses and other perspectives though, even getting this glimmer of Octavia from uh, her perspective, from Gaia's perspective is fantastic to kind of color in Lysander's picture of Octavia and the way she might've been when she was younger um, versus the way that the rim lives and the way the gold is and kind of showing this extravagance that was even there back then is it's an interesting one to kind of shape his opinion a little bit. Yeah. Um, I think, I think more than anything, I just want, I want the conversation between Lysander and Gaia to just continue. 
because I, I think it's evoking something that we haven't seen since Lysander has left Octavia, since Octavia was murdered. Um, <laughs> I think she could be that character in his life for him. When you say, um, are, are you saying from Lysander's perspective yeah. that we've been kind of missing this? Okay. Yeah. Or from in general as a perspective of the series, having this kind of old soul around. Well, that too. But what I was saying specifically was Lysander because he he is so intelligent, but that intelligence shines through when he's picking apart the details of somebody much wiser and older than him and what they're saying. And whether or not he he agrees or disagrees with it, he 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 takes in that wisdom and processes it processes it through his intelligence. And we it's it's fun. It's just a fun tap back to Octavia a little bit. Yeah. Absolutely. Could not agree more. What do you make of Lysander's memory lapse and sort of the return of the ability for him to remembering how to play piano in that whole moment? There's this sort of eerie way that it comes back to him and it sort of flashes and he remembers his mom and her hair hanging over top of him and all of these different things. What do you make of that? I mean, the biggest thing is what else has he like? What else has he forgotten? What what else is trapped in there in that mind of his that he hasn't? actively thought about and assumed wasn't there i i'm assuming there's a lot more that will be revealed there maybe nothing that important but i mean he was what eight eight years old when his mom died i think it was a little bit younger than that okay so i can't imagine there's a whole lot but music makes sense to be something that could be learned and forgotten at an early age i just I want to know what else because the way it was written made it feel like there's something else that will come up later in the same vein of things that was taught to me and lost. And by me, I mean Lysander. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I dancing around this Lysander Lysander's memory poses a really good question of whether or not this is like repressed trauma or if there's maybe something else going on. Do you ever do you ever read on that at all? Or thoughts? I think his entire life is repressed trauma. It's a fair point. I mean, it's it's hard to it's hard to really parse that out because there's so much shit that's happened in his life. He hasn't had a whole lot of peace. Yeah, no, not at all. His entire life has been either violence or training to understand how to dole out violence in a way. Yeah. Political or otherwise. Right. It's a small thing, but what we see Lysander reunited with Pytha is just such a fantastic moment, sort of the, the embrace that they have. But when he eats the sandwiches, despite feeling starving before, he insists he instead just like nibbles at one and is instead paying very close attention to the conversation. That sort of self-control runs rampant throughout his character, and I find it interesting in the way that Pierce chooses to portray this, even though he's really hungry and has had, you know, food rationed out to him in such a strict strict way. And then on top of that, wasn't fed well while he's in the cell. It's um, it's interesting. Also using food as that vehicle, even to convey that. Yeah. So obviously we have the dinner with dragons earlier on where they get their meal presented to them and then they just wait and then they eat. Mm-hmm. This seems like the more true example of how an iron gold can be in control of his desires it's not that he i have to take this time and wait and then i'll eat it's more just 
hey, food's here. I'll eat, but I'm not going to be gluttonous about it. I'll eat what I need to when I need to, and I'll I'll be proper, whatever. Like it, it makes him he's presenting himself not intentionally, I think, as more steeped in tradition and more true to the iron golds than the than the rims golds are, even though that's all they want to be, seemingly. Yeah. Okay. So I just want to make sure that I completely understand. You're basically saying that Lysander is more of an iron gold out of behavior than out of a sort of forcing of tradition because Correct. he naturally has this instinct to act like an iron gold would. Yes, exactly. Got it. Okay. Just making sure. Yeah, yeah he, I totally agree with that. The rim people, the rim lords, the rim, the rim people, they have these traditions that are respecting the, the traditions of the iron golds and whoever. The like, heritage. Yeah. Their, their heritage, but it's so strict it doesn't it doesn't um it's not applicable in the same way to their entire lives they're not they're not applying it to what they do in every moment they're just saying we need to prove that we don't have the like that we can control these desires so we're going to not eat for 15 minutes after we get our food presented to us and like sure that that does what they're saying it does but it doesn't do anything practical and he is living practically while abiding by those values if that makes sense yeah i mean without a doubt i i think that you put it very eloquently saying that uh, saying and delineating between the two i think that a great example of that if you want to point to an example of just going by the traditions but not really embracing what it means to be an iron gold you can point pretty easy to bellifron as an example of that yeah exactly barely putting up with traditions which is unlike an iron gold Mm mm-hmm so yeah i totally totally see that and understand that i think also just living your life virtuously as opposed to living it and explicitly following traditions because they're traditions yes also true yeah intentionally i i think truly i think that this word is overblown and overused inside of a lot of the self-actualized community but living with intention right like actually doing everything and choosing to do the things because you believe in them not just because they're rituals Right, exactly. Yeah, I'm with you on that. So Gaia's proposal here is a is a smart one, I think. One that could help the pair of them attain freedom, Pytha and Lysander, from the trap they currently find themselves in, that being one of execution. How do you see it going if they were to have followed through? Hmm. I think it would have been a much more uphill battle. And I, I think a big part of that is timing. Because if he had... So he he mentions he's choosing a side when he decides to side with Dido. Because either way, Mm -hmm. he's going to be choosing a side. Yep. And doesn't it make more sense to choose the side that's already ramped up and like ready to go to war than the one that's fractured and imprisoned and fighting the one that's amped up and ready to go to war? Yeah. Yeah, without a doubt. I don't... I mean... It's it's a tough call, right? Because I think that if I were to put Darrow in Lysander's shoes, I think that he would have gone to Romulus. And I think that's what makes Darrow and Lysander interesting foils to each other inside of the story, is that Lysander chose the conniving route, and Darrow would have chosen the uphill battle, as we literally just witnessed. <laughs> but I, um, I think the the important thing to point out in that scenario, though, is either way... Lysander's asks 
and goals are the same. Yeah, and Darrow's asks and goals would be the same. Not necessarily, because um, in in Darrow's if we're scenario, just talking about strictly character traits, I'm I'm talking like not okay. Pull out a lot of it. Put put out the way that they would like just choose to behave. Hmm. Darrow would go the path of going to Romulus because he believes him an honorable person. Lysander chose the path of least resistance, easiest path to success in a way, or more clean. But at the same time, I don't think Darrow would go to Romulus in this scenario because this is after Ganymede. I know. And he, I'm saying and put, he it, know, put it like Darrow knows that Romulus knows shit. I so, know. I'm re- remove that from mind, <laughs> okay, right? Okay. So what I, what I'm saying is, is if you put in the musculature and the moral compass and all of the thought processes that Darrow would make without actually putting in the the Darrow ish moments, this is the choice that Darrow would make is the one where he fights the uphill battle because he believes that it's right. Lysander chooses instead, not necessarily the right path but chooses the one of least resistance that will lead to the most likely and best outcome. I'm going to simultaneously agree with you and disagree with you. I think you're right in that Darrow would go to Romulus. I don't think it's because it's righteous. I think it's because it's the uphill battle and it's more difficult. (laughs) There's that, (laughs) but I do. I, there's not a world in which I think that, Darrow agrees with Dido. I think he'd sooner go to Romulus. Oh, of course. But I don't yeah. think he agrees with Romulus either. Nobody agrees more, and he's always proven to go with the person he agrees more with. Yeah, that's fair. Like, even he doesn't like Augustus, but he likes Augustus more than he likes <laughs> Octavia. Yeah. But that's it wasn't... Uh, I don't know if that's true. I don't think it was that... Because if it was strictly about who he liked the most, he would have gone with Lorne from the jump. Well, it was, it was no, who would put him in the most advantageous position. Well, who who did he have access to? Who's most likely to give him power? Right. And so he chose to side. He could have sided with Octavia. Remember, he had the choice but when it came I, down to the oracles. He was given the option to abandon the Martian plan. Yeah. And I, I think he probably thought that going with the Martian plan, as you as you put it, was was <laughs> more advantageous. Did, yes. I don't know. I don't know. It's yeah. hard to it's hard to call. I guess this is all loose and vague and like pointing out a specific truth isn't what I'm trying to do. I'm just trying to point to sort of the general behavior that Darrow chooses consistently. Yeah. That's true. That is another example though of him choosing the uphill battle. He always chooses <laughs> the uphill battle. Yeah. When so has he chosen chapter, the easy path? Never. Almost never. Never. With with that we go to chapter fifty six. <laughs> Lysander War of Dragons. This is more, I mean, we've kind of been talking about this a little bit here and there in, in bits and pieces. It's talking about Lysander, but Lysander's betrayal of Gaia is rapid, obviously turning over Hosta, Shizuka, 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 to Dido's evidence of her conspiracy to free Romulus. I think, I think it's the best move. It makes the most sense for his motivations. And it's the quickest way to like actually move forward with what he wants, you know, like rescue rescuing Romulus. It may be the more noble thing, but there's no guarantees that he actually gets what he wants. And with this, he actually has a bargaining chip. That's true. This also fits Lysander's skill set more. Lysander is well trained, but I wouldn't say that he's strictly 
an excellent warrior, as obviously proven by how he has difficulty taking down Gorgo. But it, it also proves that he's willing to let's see. Is if he Gorgo? were to if he were to go through with Gaia's plan, he would come across as somebody Goroth. Double- sorry, Goroth. I said Gorgo. Sorry. Anyway. I, I got what you mean. It's bugging me. If he were to go with uh Gaia's plan, he would come across as just kind of a specter almost. He he is acting for Gaia and doesn't really have scruples of his own. Whereas in this scenario, he is proving that A, he'll do what he has to in order to go forward with his own plans. And B, he will put himself at risk and give himself up to the understanding of the people that he's presenting himself to, knowing that what he's doing will hopefully be fair, uh, favorable for his outcome going forward. I, I don't think there's as many positives if he were to go towards freeing Romulus and saving him. I, I don't think he gets out in any way there without fighting for it. I totally agree with you. Not only that, but his decision is obviously correct as the chapter ends and they talk about um, Dido revealing that the his choice of death and the the choice of any sort of trial or anything like that isn't going to end up being hers alone, right? And that's that's a whole conversation that we can have at that point, but it, it feeds right into that idea, right? Even if he would have gone the, the route of rescuing Rom, Romulus, he still made the correct choice by going back to her because either way, this was going to be a thing and he basically would have proven in bad faith against the Rim that is ultimately going to win the trial because the war is happening regardless. So it would have basically been putting him on the side of I'm anti-war and would have fucked himself over, I think, even worse. He would have. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. I mean, Dido and Lysander's handling over Guy is really about buying time and saving face. We obviously have discussed this. You think that he made the right call? Yeah. Yeah, he did. Yeah. I mean, especially with hindsight, but in the moment, I still thought he was making the right choice. I don't think he's enough of a warrior to support Romulus in the way that Darrow, for instance, would, or the capabilities of Darrow or Cassius would be able to, where it would make sense to kind of pose that that fight against Dido. Romulus has also proven to him, like, he has explicitly said to Lysander that he, even though Lysander was not guilty of anything, the only thing that could really happen in order for Romulus to continue on was to execute both of them, uh, Lysander and Cassius. Yeah, like that's he, a fair point. He's, he's proven himself to be not willing to see like the the reasoning behind actions. Well, I think that um, that I don't I don't necessarily agree with that. He did see the reason that he was ex- executing them was to ensure kind of the safety of the message. And that they were kind of unneeded inside of the scenario and were only like risk vectors for keeping his daughter alive, isolated on a planet. Right. But isn't that the the sort of lack of nuance that would deter Lysander from like trying to make a deal with him? I no, I think that that's incredibly nuanced as far as it goes from Romulus's perspective, because there is no scenario in which he could envision Lysander or the at the time the Janices contributing in any meaningful way to anything and so he kind of makes that decision 
on the forward foot of, okay, well, I need to preserve my daughter's life. I need to preserve things that we don't know. And maybe perhaps that I know these things and I'm hiding it. Um, so I have to preserve that and I have to ensure that that's going to happen. So he doesn't see, I don't think there is room for nuance there. Like, what are you going to do? Let him go and let him go back across the Paxilium? I mean, yeah, ideally from Lysander's perspective. Yeah, ideally, agreed. <laughs> ideally from Lysander's perspective, but uh, not ideally from <laughs> from everything else. You know, like yeah. I, I totally see what you're saying. I just also want to say that Romulus isn't a fool. He's he's making, oh, of course not, educated educated actions and decisions. And to to kind of paint him in that picture to me just feels not quite right. I I see what you're saying though. He also. Now he doesn't have the full grasp of who Lysander was, and I think that his opinions might shift a little bit, and he could see him potentially even as a tool. I guess that's that's the other thing to bring up. Lysander and his grandmother and his family in general, how is that going to be react like received by Romulus? Because it seems like the grudge against the loons in general seems to be strongest with romulus and his family as opposed to dido who is kind of a transplant into this whole scenario wait which grudge the grudge against the loons yeah from from romulus yeah that's that's a fair point of course the grudge is only even more intensified by the killing of thessalia and so there's there's also that to consider right but there's more history with romulus and octavia than there is with dido and octavia yes yeah for sure Without a doubt. Like you said, the transplant thing kind of weighs that differently. Dido reveals that the choice of his death, as we kind of had discussed, isn't hers alone, that Romulus will have a voice in it too, and kind of the idea that there'll be dual sovereigns at the time. Um, Do you think that Romulus will side with Lysander staying alive? We've kind of been talking about this a little bit, but... First of all, fuck. Mm -hmm. But it works out well in Lysander's favor that he decided to go with Dido as long as Gaia doesn't say anything to Romulus behind her back about what was planned. So there's there's some balancing to be done there. It's gonna be that's gonna be tough. Yeah. I, I think that it's interesting in the same kind of way where if you think about it, Romulus, as we've kind of gone through the the paces on both sides of these things, as we've talked it from Lysander's perspective, Romulus might also see it as faith in the rim for him going back to dido and kind of confiding in that as faith in the winning side and so making the right decision to go with the winning side could be an interesting moment for sure for uh for whether he lives or dies so yeah but if if that causes a rift between romulus and lysander that's also going to cause a rift between romulus and dido right so that's what i'm saying is that ultimately i don't think it should cause a rift it shouldn't it shouldn't and if it does like that everything Dido was striving for is kind of crumbling as well. And Romulus doesn't get anything out of it. Like it's kind of a zero, zero win scenario. Yeah. Zero sum game. You could have said it. It, It's okay. It's not though. It's not a zero sum game because they all lose. I guess that's technically zero sum. I was going to say that's (laughs) to me, that's a zero sum game, but that's okay. Yeah. No, Um, you're, you're right. You're right. It is. Yeah, no worries. I talked myself out of zero-sum game, and I was wrong. (laughs) 
<laughs> uh Lysander in the previous chapter said that all love was lost between Seraphina and he, the end of this chapter seems to say that some of that love is lost due to this, his newly discovered heritage. Do you think that that's the case or that she was just faking it the entire time? Or do you think that there's anything there that feels, I mean, this whole thing feels a little bit childish. Like it has that hint of, um, just post pubescence in a way. What do you, what do you make of it? I've never heard that term before. But agreed. Um, I just used it. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> the first I time. Think she, first of all, I think she was faking it the entire time, and mm-hmm. second of all, I still think it's a to, co- to catch a predator setup, very elaborate. Like Chris Hansen is really stepping up his game in this season. But no, I don't. In all seriousness, I don't think she was being genuine. I think it was all a game. It was all an information game for Dido. Okay, and maybe cool. not even for Dido. Like, yes, I think it's for Dido, but I'd believe it if it was just for Serafina. All right. But either way, no, I don't think it was genuine. Okay, cool. And our final chapter of the week, chapter 57, from Ephraim's perspective. Fit for a duke. Sperspective. Sperspective. Perspective. Perspiration. Perspiration. <laughs> this final exchange between Ephraim and Lyria feels like it's laced with venom and hatred from from Lyria's perspective, especially. You can't blame the girl, of course. She's been ab- through absolute abject hell. I really can't imagine how much she fucking hates Ephraim in this moment, and I mean beyond this moment, just in general, like how much disdain and anger and hatred she harbors for this man. It 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 can't be easy for her to sit here in this scene. No, no, and it definitely wasn't in the previous scene. I mean, she knew she knew the snake oil that she was selling, so to speak. Well, it wasn't really snake oil because it wasn't fake, but she knew what she was saying to get the reaction to elicit it, and that comes across very clear here. Especially Ephraim pointing out that it was the the sugar and vinegar routine between yeah. the two of them. So exactly as we even made mention of last week, it being a good cop bad cop kind of routine. It's um, it's something else, and kind of their their final words between each other, of course, just speak that truth. the The digital hood here, I think, that Pierce Brown has decided to create is fucking genius. I think that it's an incredible way of preventing all of kind of the classical ways that you think of in heist movies of like they have the hood on they notice that their body shifts as they're taking right turns and left turns, and so they're kind of able to generally track and they can try to count the minutes. And everything like that. But giving this kind of weird VR environment instead is fascinating. Black bags, overheads, be damned. Yeah. Um, there's just something so classic about a black bag over a head, though, you know? <laughs> this like, is that black bag. It's just got a screen inside yeah, with but, wolves. But you gotta be... There's a tradition. There's a tradition you have, you gotta follow. And this just... It a valuable tradition. Over, it spits all over the tradition of kidnapping people and forcing them to uh, not see where they're going. Yeah, it, that was. Oh man, it was. <laughs> <laughs> I I loved it. I think that I completely passed over it last time that I'd read this book and a couple of the other times, but I caught. I just latched into it this time and was like, "Wow, what a fantastic way." to kind of deal with that scenario. And I mean, he ends up on the other side of the fucking moon in, in, in demon and in, in demon. Yeah. Um, which is crazy. Yeah. Like, right. How I know they're, I know they're flying. 
and he like makes comment about them moving, but it makes me wonder if there's like a secret passage through the moon. Well, I think that they had mentioned like Ephraim himself had even explained how he got there at a certain point. Basically, he was like, oh, okay, so they went suborbital. So like they were using gravity to sling themselves around the planet better, which is the same thing that we're looking at doing now with the crazy like pinpoint flights that can get you from places in like a half hour because you just go up further. Same same theory. It's just something that is still kind of foreign to us. That's fair. The ant colony, I think, inside of the room once we land in the Endymion place and we're kind of left with Gorgo and whatnot is absolutely fascinating. Do you make anything? Do you make that as a symbol? What do you think? All right. First of all, you are not unaccustomed to me talking about ant YouTube. I know. It's also why I fucking brought it up. Dude, I was going to bring it up if you didn't bring it up. Um, (laughs) Dude, I fucking love it. And also, like it, it's such a it's such a cool description of the ant farm or the mm-hmm. terrarium, essentially that they're talking about, with the little chambers of aphid farming and stuff like that, which is such such a ridiculous thing that ants do, but it's so fucking cool. Uh, are you familiar with what that is? Uh, one more time, aphid farming. I'm pretty sure. But go ahead and explain okay. to everyone. Who so know. aphids are like smaller, more simple insects, I guess. Ants, certain uh, certain ant species will keep them as livestock, essentially, because they'll break down food in a sp- or or garbage or whatever they bring in. Sometimes they'll break down things into edible food sources for the ants. Like they. These ant colonies actually have these aphids as pets that do things for the benefit of the colony. It's hilarious. It's so well, cool. It makes, that makes a lot of sense given a bug's life. So Yeah, exactly. But right. more subjugative than that. Um <laughs> That's that's no genuinely like that's that's kind of fascinating that even that detail is then included in a bug's life. Like it just speaks to Pixar's stupid yeah. brilliance. For I sure. hate it. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. Um, no, that attention detail is fantastic, and I totally agree with you. I love, I loved all of the different descriptions of like the sizes of the ants, and as they moved from the aphid colony to the other, the giant queen with the translucent eggs. Oh, dude, just watch some Ants Canada. You'll see them. Um, but they, they said that the ants are the size of a pinky, which I know my pinky's bigger than most people's pinky, but then it's, it's not that much bigger. Like that's a big fucking ant. Uh, that's, a, <laughs> that's a huge ant. <laughs> Like, what the fuck? Oh, oh, Grays they, are mostly the size of regular people. So, like, that's... Yeah. Um, I'm not. But <laughs> the, another know good you're point. They, gold-sized. They bring up the differences in sizes between the different types of workers. Like, mm-hmm. the, the warriors that are bigger. And I'm sure that he's trying to make a commentary on the colors here. But I didn't pay I think it's no different. I think it's no different that a natural order kind of emerges inside of any system. And that's kind of what it's speaking to with the Queens and things like that. Mm-hmm. It, I, I totally agree with you. I think that that's a lot. Yeah. I specifically didn't write my take in here about the symbol because I wanted to see your take on the whole thing, especially well, given I, the sort of ant nature. I do want to just kind of compare the different colors to ants in general in this scenario. In that yeah. these what, what they're referred to as is as uh super majors 
in the ant community. So they're 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 the big the fighting ant community. Are you fucking kidding me? You're not Shut getting away with that. I'm sorry. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> Continue. Shut up. Um, so super majors are like the the oversized fighting class. Like they're the defenders yeah. of certain, and not all ant species do this, but some ant species literally have a different body type and a different like physical form to some of their ants based on what their role will be in society. They are physically different, even though species wise, they are the same species of ant. Um, and th- that process is determined somehow within the larva stage. So like they're all born from the same egg and the, the way that a larva is manipulated by the workers determines what they'll come out as in, in their adult life. Interesting. Based on what they need. Do they need more work? Like, do they need more food collectors? Do they need more defense? Like whatever it is. And the, the hive will produce that. So thinking about that from the colors, clearly they are all so specifically trained for what they're good at, even though they're all technically the same species. And I know mm-hmm. we've gone back and forth on that, whether or not golds are a different section of human, but it seems that we're kind of landing on, no, they're still the same species. They just have different, they're a different cast, I guess. Um, yeah. And I think that the totally, I, I definitely agree with you. And I think that the only reason we ever brought up that golds were really different were twofold. There were two reasons. One is that it's mentioned by Adrius that they're, different by the jackal that homo superior or something like that or orate um is this this extra thing that's above and beyond everyone else and so he kind of just makes mention of that but i don't think it's truly factual mm-hmm. and the second is really the reproductive limit limitations that are given to different colors from fitchner needing to have um yeah. his wife Bryn modified so that they could have a kid reproduction is definitely where uh <laughs> Comparisons between the uh, the colors the colors have and, came up and, yes and farms completely devolve like dissolve <laughs> the comparisons dissolve entirely because it's just one one big old lady laying all the eggs. <laughs> it's true, but I I think that the rest of your point totally stands. I think that for the most part it is kind of that caste system. It's broken out to be a parallel. And what I find so interesting is that you then throw in the rogue variable of the sort of dead flesh of a number, another member, and it's just more fuel to yeah. the fire. Anyone that dies is still fueling something going forward, and society continues to propel itself no matter the bodies that are laid at its feet. Yeah. And there, then there's... Yeah, go ahead. No, you, you oh, go, go ahead, because I'm continuing on outside of that. No, go go ahead on the the. Well, I was just going to say that there was there was a line a long time ago from Lorne, I believe, about the gears of society grinding grinding men together, or like men are just gear meat for the grinder, basically. Mm-hmm. And I think that that also kind of fits in that the the cogs of society only turn because there there's new meat to be ground to be consumed by the uh, engine of empire, for sure. But then. On top of that, 
you get the... we talked about this for so long i love it okay yeah we, we've talked about this for a long time and i know i i kind of droned on no, no, no. a little bit no no, no. I, I love but it i love it <laughs> only only after analyzing this ant farm for a while does ephraim realize that it's technically two ant farms and there's a partition in the middle mm-hmm. and there's two different species of ants kind of bunching up and kind of starting to face off against each other even though they're separate it's hard to tell what he means if there's a parallel and if that's the rim versus the core or the society versus the republic or the society versus the rising or the syndicate versus everybody else so i i think that it's sort of the the criminal underbelly right is what that's sort of referring to is the society within the structure that fights against one another and how there's always going to be kind of within humanity. As you look at it, there's always an under society. There's always crime exists regardless. We we've never been, there's no society that's existed that has effectively eliminated crime. And that's due to a, a number of extenuating circumstances that you could help, help many people talk about all the time. It's basically the lesson behind economics in general. But that said, I think that that's directly what that's going for between the the split, as you were mentioning. Yeah, I think is the so. underbelly. I think that makes sense. I'm with you. Yeah. How how fucking wild that there's so much there to talk about though, and it's such a it's such a visceral piece of imagery because it consumes like a page page and a half worth of talking points, and like yeah. Ephraim himself keeps bringing it up because Gorgo isn't fucking telling him anything. It's because uh, ant farms are fucking cool, and more people should watch ant YouTube. What was the one you recommended? Canada Ant? Ants Canada. Ants <laughs> Canada. Oh, no. All right. I I mean, I watch every episode they put out. It's That's it's fair. really good. I will so I will defend it to the, my last dying breath. Ants Canada <laughs> is a very very good YouTube channel, and I really fucking love it. That's great, man. You don't Proud believe you. me? No, I believe you. It just doesn't <laughs> sound like something that I'm interested in, which is okay. I, I think you'd like it. It's mostly because I don't really like bugs. Like I'm not not a big fan. I don't think you have to. I think it's just it's just done in such a compelling way. And there's like a through line story element to the way that he presents each episode. Like it's really well done. I would implore you to take a shot on it. To me, insects are the ultimate example of of like lizard brain. And I dislike the lizard brain in humans and in everything else. That's fair. You're always fighting against the lizard brain. And so I always have this like repulsion in general. But you know what, PJ, just for you, I will give it a go and let you know I'll, what I think. I'll, I'll try to find episode. a good episode for you to start on. Maybe that's a symposium topic Ooh. at some point. No, it's too it, it's too much content for that. <laughs> well, it wouldn't have to be the whole thing. It would just be kind of a general yeah, that's <laughs> shit. Okay, so there's a small note here that I really appreciate, and I picked up every time that I've read it because I've seen this and I know this so well. But the line that Gorgo says is, you're funny. How's that working for you, being funny? And this is a very clear reference to Fight Club's line between uh, Tyler Durden and our unnamed narrator of, you're clever. How's that working for you, being clever? And... It's just so great. It's so well done. And each time I read it, I'm like, fuck yeah. That's a great, great reference. I knew it was a reference. I recognized the quote. I couldn't remember what it was from. So I'm glad you brought that up. 
because I really yeah. couldn't remember, but I knew I knew it was referencing something. Yeah, had had to bring it up. It's a it's a fantastic little little bit. Hmm. So the Duke, of course, comes back and pops open the bottle that we had discussed previously, the Ladame Chanchus, something like that. Uh, what do you think of his speech about power and the fantasy of the slaves? I think a lot of it is rooted in truth. And I think he clearly falls into that description as well. And I, I don't know if he's aware of that or if he's ignoring the fact that he kind of falls into it or if it's ironic or what. Um, but he too has desires. He too is a slave to those desires and is forever going to be looking for a way to whet that appetite, you know? And he kind of proves that like he he will devolve to base desires if put in the right circumstances, like Ephraim seducing him under the table, you know, that is, that is very true and very interesting when, and, and I totally agree with you in terms of the sort of base, baser things that exist as, as I just mentioned, kind of the lizard brain that exists, which he clearly yeah, falls point. victim to very good point. The thing with me that resonates specifically about the Duke and sort of the bottle and the conversation here is that it actually mirrors a conversation that happened with the Jackal previously when his tongueless pink slave was was there in the room and was being tortured in sort of the fantasy of like, will you kill me? Will you pull the trigger? No, you never will, because it's just a fantasy. You can't actually pull the trigger. Um, Mm. Even when you have the opportunity, you can't do it. And he kind of echoes that exact sentiment here, which is so fatalistic from Pierce's perspective, saying that even once you get into the position of power, because you understand where you came from and where you are, even understanding that while they may feel that way, you can also manipulate that feeling and deal and handle, handle it. I just, man, that to me in particular is a very brutal revelation, especially when you compare it to Adrius's speech. I think that's in golden sun. Maybe it's in Morningstar. I think it's in Golden Sun. Um, hmm. I can't remember. I can't remember which one. I'm pretty sure it's Golden Sun. Pretty sure it's just pre the gifts. Yeah, that was that was Golden Sun, wasn't it? Yep. 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 I think so. But yeah, I, I mean, to me, it just it speaks to a different level of the sort of it's a very touchy subject. But there there was obviously it. It echoes throughout a lot of um, old racist commentary that exists, mm-hmm. and I'm not educated enough to speak about it super eloquently, but I think I can summarize a little bit and and give some very general thoughts and feelings on the whole subject matter, just to say that this sort of idea that the subjugated are lesser and won't rise up is such a sort of fatalistic approach and feeling, especially when you're comparing them to fellow humans. And I think that that is another a failing of the Duke's character to not recognize that uh, that even his own people might seize upon that desire at some point if the want for power outweighs the need for the need to survive. Yeah. So the the base like triangle of of uh, needs need to be mm-hmm. met. They'll reach for power so that they can reach the needs. Yeah. Is that the op? Uh, say that again. That that doesn't seem like the op. That seems like using one as a means of finding the other. Well, right. So if if the needs of the triangle of if the needs of like house and home and food and sleep and shelter and whatever are go unmet, 
you might reach for power so that you can get those things because okay. from power okay. you can leverage it to give you those things now i understand what you mean yeah 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 for sure yeah it's it's tough especially considering he was one who was subjugated and he speaks so openly and so eloquently about that it man what a tough character the duke is a tough and interesting character yeah and i i think him being a rose is also <laughs> an important part of that knowing what yeah his, through. his whole conversation about the difference between a pink and a rose is also fascinating where he's like they realized that we were just like dead toys of of false passion and so they need to make us something more is just also fucking hardcore pierce dude you just ugh, you twisted him and made pinks more like more sympathetic they were already very sympathetic as a as this low color sex slave but jesus wow ouch mm. the reality so then once Ephra manages to turn him on and get him alone he <laughs> strikes <laughs> he breaks that pink's nose calls holiday to send the cavalry and we find out that it's going to take an awfully long time for them to get there yeah like i know we talked about this before but it seems it seems crazy to be on the other side of the moon you know mm-hmm. like that's that's a long way to go but yeah it just means he's got to hold out for a while right and he can he can manage He's going to manage, it, it appears. He's doing his best, I should say, to manage. He almost doesn't for a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, he has... Ephraim has a really tough time of things. I think that's one of the other things that I really appreciate about this book is everything feels... The stakes feel much more real and much less like all of our characters are insulated. The protagonist's safety bubble. That's entirely true. Yeah. So Ephraim torturing the Duke with the bone saw and taking off his hand is some gory, good fun... And then the blade that gets him through the cheek as well. It's a fucking huge oof for Ephraim. It's just oh, blah. the fact that it's like in his gum and he has to dislodge the subdermal blade. Was it through his cheek or through his cheek bone? I thought it said cheek bone. I think I no, he had. To, yeah, he had to dislodge it through his gum or from his gums. So I imagine I know that it was at the very least in the cheek and into the gums. So I don't know if it went up through the bone or just through the cheek. 540, I think. Let's see. Through the cheekbone along the upper right molars and sticking through into the, the gums. cheek bone. Oh, oh, that's worse. Fucked up. <laughs> yeah. Just shattered jaw and all like Jesus. Through the cheekbone into the upper molars. Like I'm, I'm feeling my face right now. That uh-huh. is, that is not a thin piece of bone. EJ. Hmm. I can't feel my face when I'm with you. And I love it. And I love it. Come on, you're supposed to like dance along with that. I quit. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm filing uh, a sexual harassment. <laughs> we both own this company damn it (laughs) you can't you can't do that actually Uh, it's totally legal and you probably should if you feel i'm going to hire an hr company to uh represent my needs (laughs) that's gonna go really well for (laughs) for the bank account uh so (laughs) what bank account (laughs) yeah right exactly the paypal account that doesn't exist (laughs) um so man this is 
it, it it's insanely gory and it's very real. We move on, of course, from this like stabbing moment to I love I also didn't call this out, but when he calls Holiday and he's holding his broken nose and just pinches those broken bones together and it like squirts. It, that is one of the most satisfying moments of torture in this entire book series to me. Yeah. <laughs> like, yep. Just <laughs> real I've broken my nose four times. Like I know exactly the way that that fucking ship moves around up there. Ugh. Oh, gross. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty fucking gross. The firefight with Ephraim against the Obsidians, of course, the whole encounter with the Duke is just incredibly violent. This is the shit that I like really want to see adapted because it's so much fun. It's so cool. Breaking into the vault and the Obsidians and the elevator. All of this is very Ocean's Eleven. Yeah. Or Mission yeah, Impossible, even. Something like that. Yeah just kind of um what's the right term to describe that sort of way of sequencing action it's not structured necessarily but spy thriller like this has like a spy aspect to it yeah which makes total sense based on what's what's going on the espionage within the criminal underbelly of society that's pretty spy thrillery and ephraim also fits that mold so it's it's fantastic Oh, for sure. And then, of course, we go from that to stumbling into the vault where Ephraim finds the most valuable children in the world among a pile of treasures. Yeah, I was I was kind of astonished by what conditions they were being kept in. Like uh, they they mentioned the cage, which whatever, like got to come somewhere. Right. But only one mattress. Like, Would you not like within a trophy room? Would you not want to keep your prizes as pristine as possible and like the chicken bones and the the fecal bucket and like everything else obviously the vault isn't gonna have like a full service bathroom we're not expecting that i'm also shocked that they're kept together and not apart right that too um but at the same time at this point and me in general we have no idea what their actual technical plan is going forward yeah right with the kids we also we kind of find out that the um, that the syndicate queen appears to be an obsidian from everyone's knowledge. Do you have any theories about that? It's Perhaps that's maybe. I still a think prediction. it's Dino. <laughs> what? You still think it's Dino? Yeah. Yeah. All right. And that's it for the chapters for this week. We'll move into PJ's predictions. So you've got a couple here that I think are very interesting. In Darrow's attack on the Ash Lord's base, who actually survives? I think it's going to be a very small group of survivors. I think Darrow for one, Apollonius for two, and I think the only other survivor is going to be Rona. She's there, right? Yeah, she's there. No, she's up on the ship, actually. Okay, then she definitely she's, survives. She's Shit. manning one of the, the cannons on the Nessus. Okay, I thought she was down. Never mind. Nope. Thraxa then, is down. Thraxa. That's who I'm thinking of. So, Darrow, Apollonius, and Thraxa. I'll physically write it in. Yep. That's who I was thinking. You think yeah. Alexander dies as well? Yeah. I think every, everybody okay. else, I think, dies. Severo too, man? Yep. Oh, man. Ugh. Oh, the cold heart world that you live in is um is a brutal one. All right, next question. Does Lysander get out of this with his life? Yes, but 
I don't think he'll get out like as an innocent bystander. I think he'll need to pledge himself to fight for the rim. That's interesting. Who is the syndicate queen? Dino. Dido. (laughs) Dido. Dido is the syndicate queen. Okay. Manipulating things from the rim all the way. She's had communication lines that have crossed the Paxilium for a long time. Mm -hmm. Digging for evidence. Okay. All right. What happens to Lyria? I think she, we, we see kind of an epilogue for her getting reunited with Liam, settling into a more permanent job within the, uh, within the house Telemannus. I guess with, with that in mind, do you think that she is in the next book? I think she's in the next book. I don't think she's going to be a main character. Like, I, I think she'll exist and I think she'll show up, but I don't think she'll be a perspective. Going sure. Forward. She's not a POV. Yeah, that makes sense. All right. With that, next week, we'll be reading from chapter 58 to the freaking end of the book, PJ. We're the here. Frickin end. Frickin end. Leave me alone. It didn't feel right. <laughs> <laughs> so but that i mean the the fucking there didn't feel right but we're gonna be at the end of the book like we are that's exciting it's very very exciting exciting. can't can't wait i'm excited too. in case you all are blissfully unaware of what we're doing for the end of this book we are changing it up a little bit we're not going to do a short pour and an intro episode likely for dark age what we'll be doing instead is going to be doing the wrap-up and then either going directly in or including a little bit of a rough introduction uh, but there will won't be a short pour a short story or anything like that this time it's just going to be straight in straight red rising yep sticking sticking with it our wrap-up episode for those of you who didn't check out our schedule and look at it at all by the way is going to be with hail reaper we're going to have all three hosts mather jeremy and philip on it'll be a fantastic time we're very excited i'm so excited it's the most people will have ever had on the show at the same time (laughs) so we keep like gradually graduating just as a as a note for uh, for ourselves and for like how this show gets produced we'll have like a day between when we record the episode with the most number of people to when it gets released i think I think we'll have like yep. two days. It's going to be a day. Yep. So balancing five people's audio tracks and <laughs> doing all of the editing on that front is going to be a nightmare, I think. So it'll be a lot of fun. <laughs> it's going to be a lot of fun. I think we're we're very excited for the whole thing. So it should it should be a good time. But I agree with you. It's going to be a fast turnaround. You're all going to love it, though. So oh, yeah. we're not. We're it'll not be. I, I think we could probably release it raw and it'd still be fine. Like they're, yeah. they're professionals. They know what they're doing. Unlike us. <laughs> <laughs> so that's where we're going to leave you for this week. Yeah. Uh, thank you once again to Tim and Andrew, our producers, our helpers, our lovers, all of that. You, you're everything to us. You guys <laughs> keep our lights show on. As you know, um, check out listeners. And now I'm talking to you. I'm not gushing over Tim and Andrew. Listeners, you should check out the links in our show notes. You can find our schedule, our Patreon, our previous episodes, our website, all of our social media contacts, all of that stuff, all in one convenient spot in the show notes. 
Yeah, the only other thing to mention is don't forget about our contest that is going on through this month of June as well. It's on Instagram. Go look at our June 1st post. We've had a number of very recent entries today at this point while we're while we've been recording even. Uh, that giveaway is going to be for a subterranean press copy of Dark Age. There are two options for entry. Both are shown on Instagram through the text. One is to join our Patreon and two is to leave us an Apple podcast review and your username on that Instagram post. Don't forget to leave that review with your username on that post. Important. If you are too lazy to look at the show notes, that is at words, whiskey pod on Instagram and Twitter for that matter. But going forward right now, we want to take a second to thank our new patrons. So we've got a new bar back, Jeremy Tuttle from Hill Reaper, as we just mentioned. Uh, big thank you to Jeremy for the support. It's great to have you around. We're really appreciative of uh, of you supporting us on the show, and it was great to participate with you in the trivia the other night. Fantastic. Thanks Absolutely. for joining. Yeah, that's awesome. Awesome that you support us as well. Abe Lincoln Froman, who we talked about last week, he has graduated from bartender to mixologist. So fantastic to have you in the upper tier it's gonna be a lot of fun yeah and a very special thank you and shout out to sushi western for bringing to life the moment we mentioned last week with the mai tais salads and the corn dogs on the beach it was it was kind of a moment of joy for both of us to see that we had made jokes about like adding you in the whole thing as we were talking about the the little clip that we wanted to send out that day um but it was absolutely phenomenal yeah. and fantastic fucking, i'm so fucking so hilarious incredible and funny and just consistently brings joy all the time thank you you. if you listened to the last episode where i talk about how crossing likes to eat salad on the beach even though it gets false (laughs) um sushi western completely like brought that to life it's amazing but um regardless anybody who interacts with us thank you so much for your support it means the world and uh we are stoked for how this all goes forward can't wait so with that we will see you next week yep see ya thanks